Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy for Life podcast where we will be discussing maintainable, sustainable, conscious living. I'm your host, Sarah Grace. Thanks for joining me. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me today. I am especially excited to get into this week's episode with you all. And I think now is a great time to share this information. And I actually have had quite a few people sending me messages or even approaching me in person with questions about this topic. And it is a topic that is a lot of people get uncomfortable. They don't want to discuss it. They get defensive. They get angry. I mean, people fight over this topic. I'm guessing that you might have an idea of what it is, <laughs> but it's one that is, I would say people are kind of more curious about lately and starting to discuss more about and hopefully do more research on. And so if you haven't already figured it out, today's topic is all about vaccines. That's right. You heard it. It's all about vaccines. And I'm going to be bringing Dr. Janet Levitin on to talk with you all. She is a homeopathic MD. So she was just a pediatric MD when she first started in medicine. And then she decided to implement these homeopathics into her practice and kind of change her own, uh, trajectory and go into private practice. And so she'll tell you more about that, but she's very knowledgeable on the topic of vaccines and she has lectured and presented on it. And so I, I had her on previously to talk and that episode was early on when I started the, the podcast. So you can go back and listen to it. It's also really interesting, but I had wanted to get her on to talk about this topic specifically. I feel like people are beginning to wake up uh, what we have seen with the COVID-19 vaccine and the dangers of it or the fact that it's not been really approved, but yet it's being forced on people. And then, you know, what we're seeing as far as injuries and death from it is very mind-blowing for a lot of people. And for those of us like myself who has been looking into this topic and researching this topic for over six years, I'm not surprised by anything that I'm seeing and hearing. But I think there are a lot of people who are beginning to be curious. And maybe they're starting to say, wow, if this is happening with this vaccine, what about all the previous ones? And so that's what we're really going to focus on today. And I hope that you all have a, a pen and a, and a paper and you are ready to take notes. We're going to be sharing some incredible resources with you all and some places that you can go to educate yourself on this topic. Don't just take our words for it. Do the research yourself. That is the key here. We have a problem with our country, actually worldwide, of people just being spoon-fed their information. They want to be told what to think, told what to do, because they're too busy and they're too lazy to do their own research. And what is the result or the end product of that? It's you are manipulated. You are uh, fear. Your decisions are based in fear. You're easily persuaded because you don't know what you believe in and you don't know what you stand for because you haven't put in the work. 
And that's why people often get really upset about this topic is because maybe they've just been going along and giving their kids all the vaccines, or maybe they themselves have been getting them and they've never questioned it. And then you stand up and say something and it throws a wrench into their narrative, into what they've been doing. And it might shine a light and say, okay, maybe I have been lazy, or maybe I have been ignorant, or maybe I have been irresponsible. And people don't like that. They don't want to feel uncomfortable. They don't want to put in the work. It's, it's the same with fitness. It's the same with nutrition. We hold the key. It's up to us. We have the ability to educate ourselves. And if anyone tells you, oh, I'm just going to listen to doctors and, and scientists and virologists or leave that to the doctors. You shouldn't be talking about that. You tell them to screw off because that is a lie. That is not true. You have the ability to, to learn all these same things. And in fact, there are plenty of doctors and virologists and PhDs and scientists who are supporting everything that we will be talking about today. It's just that they are silenced and they are sort of thrown to the side. So unless you know where to look, it's hard to find them. But I hope this inspires you all today and you're ready to learn and to share this episode with your friends and anyone who might be seeking more information. And uh, please, as always, subscribe and give us a five-star rating. So let me get Janet on here, Dr. Levitin. Hi, Dr. Levitin. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Sarah, for the opportunity to be here. Tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background. I know you've been a guest on my show previously, but um, you can kind of refresh everybody a little bit. Oh, sure. I think it's been a while since I've been on. Uh, my name is Dr. Janet Levitin, and I have been a holistic pediatrician. It's actually hard to take stock of this, but since 1982, <laughs> I first became a pediatrician in 1982. And during my training, I became aware actually pretty early on in my training that I didn't really like a lot of what I saw in conventional medicine. I'm not sure exactly what I thought I was getting into, but I didn't really like all the medications that were used and the poor quality of food in hospitals. And I, I came to a point in the middle of my training where I had to decide if I wanted to continue with my medical training or just leave and do something else. So I actually took a year off school and took some time to do some soul searching and research and just tuning into what was going to be right for me. And I decided to go back and finish all my schooling, uh, but I made a commitment to myself that I would do something more natural and holistic um, down the line when I was through with my training. I wasn't sure exactly what that would be, but I found that out as time went along. And then I decided to go into pediatrics because it seemed like a natural field for trying to do things more naturally and more holistically, you know, try to promote healthy pregnancy, try to promote healthy birth practices, and then, of course, raise the children up with breastfeeding, healthy nutrition, and holistic practices. Mm -hmm. So I became a pediatrician and started my own practice when I got out of my residency. That was in early 1986. I started using homeopathy, and it's basically been been a journey since then for, like I said, like almost 40 years. Wow. So I did and have- how, So how long did you practice as a, a kind of like a standard pediatrician? Although it sounds like you were never really standard, but how long did you practice as a pediatrician before you kind of changed things up? Well, I 
during my residency, which is three years, that was from 1982 to late 1985, I basically had to practice what I call conventional medicine back then because it was in a training institution. But pretty much right away when I got out, I met some homeopathic doctors, and that's when I started bonding with homeopathy and using it. And I I believe we might have talked about in the previous podcast, I actually sort of forget everything we talked about, but uh, (laughs) in an effort to uh, do things more naturally and with homeopathy being very safe and effective for acute and chronic problems, uh, that's what I adopted as my main treatment modality. So pretty much from the beginning when I was out, I was, you know, I'm not going to say I never prescribe uh, conventional medicine like an antibiotic or medications for asthma, but really not very often because I just don't need to very often because of having homeopathy and other tools, other natural tools. So I had my own solo private practice in the Boston, Massachusetts area for 25 years. Then I had met Dr. Tenpenny at a conference and she put up on social media one day that she was looking for another doctor to join her practice. And I had gotten burned out, not on being a doctor, but I had gotten burned out on being self-employed and keeping all the business aspects of things going. I really didn't like that part of it at that time frame. So I left Massachusetts and moved to Ohio to join the, the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center. And I've been there. It's almost my 10th year anniversary there. Wow. And did you ever then in practice as a pediatrician, did you ever administer vaccines or you only got to kind of witness that in your training and your residency? Okay. Well, that, well, that's a good question. And I did used to administer some vaccines. I think the landscape was very different back then when I was in my residency in the 1980s. Vaccines were, um, it was much more of a I guess you could say unstructured, and it was a little more loosey-goosey. We had a clinic that we called the Continuity Clinic, and people would come in with their babies, and we would sort of say, or at least I would say to them, oh, vaccines are recommended recommended today. Are you interested in that today? And if people said no, I'd say, okay, well, you know, revisit it next time. Or I would tell people, hey, you know, vaccines are recommended at this age, but why don't we wait till next time? And we just did it very much like that. I, I like to leave it as an elective procedure. So I, I certainly didn't know everything then that I know now because everything is a journey and so much information has come to light. But mm-hmm. one thing, one very key experience was when I was in my residency, you know, you spend the night overnight in hospital, in the hospital. And I got called down to the emergency room one night. It was like two in the morning. And I went down there and basically it was a four month old DOA dead baby from SID, sudden infant death syndrome. And the baby, you know, couldn't be resuscitated. He was basically dead. And which was of course, very tragic. And when I started interviewing the parents and asking them, had he been sick? What was going on? They said, oh, well, he had his vaccines yesterday. So there he was, you know, vaccinated 2 p.m., dead at 2 a.m. And I didn't understand everything about it, but just that knowledge just went right inside of me. And I knew that the vaccine had had something to do with it. So back then, I thought sudden infant death syndrome was this thing that could occur usually between anywhere between birth and six months of age. So my thinking was, oh, SIDS can occur up to six months of age and a vaccine may trigger it. So just let's not give any vaccines before six months of age. So when I got into my own practice, that's what I did. I would never give vaccines before six months of age. And I would kind of present it to people as this is an elective procedure that you can choose, you know, say yes or say no to. 
and um, let's just kind of do one at a time and sort of spread them out. That was my thinking back then. But more and more information kept coming to light. And, you know, when they came out with the hepatitis B vaccine for five-year-olds and then later on for one-day-olds, I always, for my whole career, I said no to that. I never administered that. Then when they came out with the chickenpox vaccine in 1996, I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. I'm not giving chickenpox vaccines to anybody. And then um, along the way, I also saw two more SIDS, so-called SIDS deaths in four months old who had been vaccinated within the past 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So my knowledge base was increasing. But you know, one thing you have to understand is when I first started studying vaccines back in the 1980s, there was no internet that was, you know, for public use. And there, you couldn't just go Google something, you had to go to the library and try to dig out references, go through the card catalog for anybody who remembers that. Amazing, And right. there was like two books, there was um, Barbara Lowe Fisher and Harris Coulter's book, DPT, A Shot in the Dark. Mm -hmm. And there might have been Oh, Dr. Mendelssohn, um, Dr. Robert Mendelssohn was writing newsletters. I, I think I still have the hard copy paper copies of his newsletter that was all questioning vaccines. So there was just not that much information back then. Right. And it was kind of like a grassroots movement because also, you know, and we're going to get into this more as we go, but they, the schedule was nothing like it is today. And like you said, it was more of a laid back approach to it. So things have changed dramatically. But the good news is we have access to so much more information very quickly and easily if you know where to look. And that's kind of what I want to help people understand and kind of sift through some of this information today. So let's start by kind of just talking about, um, you know, our most common vaccines today that are administered and what is sort of the general way and how they are created and how they are used? What's the idea behind them to fight, you know, viruses and that sort of thing? Okay. Well, the first thing you mentioned was about the schedule and you talked about how the schedule is very different today than it was in the past. And that is for sure, because when I was starting out my career, which I was talking about in the continuity clinic and then early in my own office practice, we had basically seven vaccines and two of them were combinations. There was DPT or diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus. There was polio, which at that time was oral polio. It was little drops you would put in a baby's mouth. It was not an injection. And then there was the MMR or measles, mumps, rubella. And that actually, one of the controversies is you can't get the components of that separately these days. Back, back those, if somebody wanted just the measles, you could actually acquire them separately. But right. at any rate, there were seven vaccines, um, the DPT, diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, and polio. Um, and we can come back, circle back around to why the schedule increased, because I think that was one of the topics you wanted to cover. But yeah. but you're talking about how are vaccines made? Well, yeah. So like, uh, yeah, uh, let's talk about kind of originally like with attenuated live virus, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, there's there's different technologies for, for each vaccine, and I do also believe that it changes from year to year, and it's different from company to company. But there are bacterial vaccines, which cover bacteria such as pneumococcus, meningococcus, haemophilus influenza B. Um, those, I believe, are the main bacterial uh, vaccines. There's also 
pertussis, or also known as whooping cough pertussis, is a type of bacteria as well. Mm-hmm. And then there are viral vaccines, which is measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, influenza, of course, infamous SARS-CoV-2, that's a viral, yep. viral supposed to be a viral vaccine. Um, and they, they have to propagate or grow viruses and bacteria in some sort of medium. So there's a lot of controversies about that. They, some of them are grown in animal products. So like monkey kidney cells, which are Mm -hmm. also known as vero cells, dog kidney cells. And hopefully I'm not misspeaking about anything. I'm just talking largely from from research. So I'll I'll make a disclaimer if there's any, you know, errors in what I say. Um, And many of the viral vaccines are propagated, some of the viral vaccines are propagated in actual human cells. Mm -hmm. And the big controversy about that is those human cells originated from aborted fetuses. Right. And if anybody's watched the, on YouTube, the uh, deposition of Oh, gosh, I'm blanking out on his name. Oh, yes. This is a good one. Dr. Stanley Plotkin. Yes, Stanley yes. Plotkin. Yes, it's actually, it's actually the, the godfather of vaccines. Yeah. yeah. He, it's actually a nine-hour deposition, and I watched the whole thing. And he actually con- confesses or admits to how many fetuses were aborted to obtain what they needed to make some of the vaccines. And I for, it was something like 36, I, I forget exactly, or maybe it was 65. It, was a, it wasn't just one aborted fetus, it was a lot of them. So right. at any rate, pe- you know, many people object to this on religious grounds, and I fully understand that, and many people object to it on scientific grounds. I mean, why do we want to be objecting, injecting products of male and female aborted humans into male and female human infants. It's just not a good idea from a scientific or a religious point of view, right? as far as I'm concerned. Right. And along with the animal and the human, there's so many concerns, for instance, with the polio vaccine and how uh, it was infected with the very first one they came out with in 1953, how it was infected with SV40 virus, which came from all the monkeys. Mm -hmm. And that now they have found SV40 in people's cancers and it, it causes cancer uh, tumors of the bones, blood, that sort of thing, those types of cancers. And so there's so much concern there, I feel like, with human and animal, aside from the ethical standpoint of the aborted fetuses, but there's a lot of health concerns there too. Oh, yes, because when you're working with human cells or animal cells, whatever type of an organism it is, you initially when they were making these vaccines, they didn't have instruments or microscopes powerful enough to see viruses. I mean, viruses are basically just little snippets of RNA and DNA, and they're they're not easy to detect. There's actually some controversies about whether viruses actually even exist, but exist, that's like a right. whole other, that's a yeah. whole other uh, <laughs> rabbit hole to go thing. down. But yes. when you're taking, propagating or growing materials inside animal cells, you have no idea what sort of contaminants are getting into your final product. So I can just mm-hmm. leave that at that. And some, some of them 
are grown in chicken eggs. That's flu vaccines. There was a company that was proudly announcing a few years ago, oh, if you're allergic to eggs, don't worry, because we're growing our flu vaccines in fall army worms, which is a type of caterpillar. That doesn't actually make me feel that much better <laughs> to right. think about cat products from a caterpillar being injected into me. No, <laughs> right. no thanks. <laughs> but would it, so it's safe to say then that every vaccine on the market has is grown in some sort of either human or animal cell line, right? Uh, Aside from maybe COVID nineteen vaccine, because that's totally different. Well, there, I believe there are some that use what's called recombinant technology, okay. where they use bacteria oh, okay. to grow them. But I, I don't want to misspeak on this, but they do use, for the most part, animals, humans, or bacteria. Okay. Uh, there may be okay. some other technologies that I'm not aware of. But those then the, seem the next, to be the most common. I think those are the most common. And, right. you know, you can go online. I, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but there's a list of all the vaccines and all of the ingredients. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell what's what because it might say MRC5, but what you don't know is that is a cell line from an aborted fetus. Medical right. Research Council, you know, fifth. Yes. fetus. So sometimes codes are used that you need to understand um, if you want to know what ingredients really are. Then there's a whole other category of ingredients called excipients. And those are basically the ingredients that are used to make a solution or homogenize a vaccine. So you don't want everything settling out and sediment at the bottom and liquid at the top. So they put in detergents and okay, homogenizers right. and oils and you know propylene glycol and things like this. Oh, I, right. I forgot to say that um, the reason they're they're using viruses and they're using bacteria or components of bacteria is because when they inject that into you, the expected outcome is is that your body will produce antibodies against components in the bacteria or components in the virus. Those are called antigens. Those are supposed to stimulate an immune response. So sometimes right. it's a crunched up whole bacterium or a crunched up virus, or sometimes it's just a component. And we see that with the, the COVID vaccine, it's the spike protein or other aspects of the that virus. With mm -hmm. bacteria, sometimes it's just uh, portions of the bacteria. With the tetanus vaccine, it's the toxoid produced by the bacteria, which is not the bacterium itself, but some of the toxins that it produces. So there's all different ways they they make them, and they have to combine them. That's the excipients. And then one of the most controversial parts of vaccine ingredients is um, adjuvants. Right. So adjuvants are supposed to increase the effectiveness of vaccines. So adjuvant was, the first knowledge I have of it being used was with penicillin. So when they first invented penicillin, which is not a, a vaccine, but it was an injectable antibiotic, they found that if they injected it into people, it would help with infections, but they were having to administer it like every couple hours because the body would just eat through it, use it up, and then you would need more and there wasn't enough penicillin. So they said, well, what if we started combining it with something that would sort of slow the absorption of it? Would this make the penicillin have a longer lasting effect? So they started putting it in peanut oil and injecting it. So the peanut oil would sort of form a a base in which the penicillin would stay and, and release more slowly. But okay. it's not a good idea to start injecting 
boils into people because that can cause its own set of reactions. In (laughs) fact, something I found out in my research, which was really interesting, is that allergies were never even heard of, or they were they were not a, a thing or an entity until the invention of the hypodermic needle. So until we started injecting things into people, allergies were essentially unheard of, if you can believe that. It's so true, right? And then you saw a, a major spike in allergies, eczema, but it's amazing now. Like there are so many schools that they don't allow nuts at all in school because so many kids have major allergies, nut allergies, and it it's not a coincidence. We know what's causing it, you know? That's right. There's a there's a book written about that very subject called The Peanut Allergy Epidemic by Heather Fraser, and it's got a lot of references and a lot of science in it. Anybody who wants to delve into understanding peanut allergy more or and allergies in general, that's a that's a good book for people. What's the name of it again? It's called The Peanut Allergy Epidemic. And then okay. it might have a, like a subtitle, something Okay. what's causing it and how to end it. But it's by Heather Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R. So if you're keeping okay. a list of, of references, that could be a good one. Yes. And so we're, so adjuvants. So adjuvants are really, I think they're very, how can I say this? I think they're creepy <laughs> um, because they're basically are creating a larger inflammatory response. So many of them are based on aluminum. There's a number of different aluminum containing adjuvants. But aluminum, if you research aluminum, before like the late 1800s or the early 1900s, all of the aluminum in the world was inside the crust of the earth. We did not have aluminum out here above the surface of the earth. And when they started digging up aluminum and discovering all its properties, they just started using it for everything. You know, the obvious things that you can think of, cookware, airplanes, They use it in medicines and they use it as adjuvants, but aluminum has no biological function in the human body and aluminum is toxic to the body. So you're not going to notice if you just have a little bit of it in your body, but it accumulates over time, it bioaccumulates. And basically without aluminum, you would not have autism and you would not have Alzheimer's. I'm not saying aluminum is the only cause of those conditions, but essentially the brain the brains of all people with autism and alzheimers and probably other neurological degeneration degenerative diseases as well if you autopsy them you will find aluminum because aluminum accumulates and not everybody's detoxification mechanisms are the same so people who have more robust detoxification mechanisms perhaps their body can keep up with um, discharging that or detoxing from that aluminum but a lot of people can't so anyway, aluminum is being repeatedly injected into our children. Um, right. And and that's the thing with these adjuvants is they, from my understanding, they cross the blood-brain barrier and they kind of hang out in the brain. And like you said, with autism, they've studied the brains of autistic children and found severe inflammation and uh, aluminum and those sorts of things. Um so it would lead one to believe that aluminum might not be a good adjuvant. <laughs> no, aluminum is not a, a good adjuvant. And for, for people who want to research into that more, one of the world's foremost aluminum researchers, his name is Christopher Exley, E-X-L-E-Y. He's, mm-hmm. he's from Europe. He's from England. 
and he has been researching aluminum for maybe over 30 years. And he has become a spokesperson for the fact that aluminum is present in the brains of people with autism and people with Alzheimer's. He's actually lost his faculty position when he started talking about aluminum and adjuvants. Um, And he's now is trying to set up his own independent research organization. That's how how people get treated when they start talking about the dangers of vaccines. Those are the kind of, those are the kind of people that I want to follow and respect though, because they're willing to kind of stick their necks out there. And so, cause originally uh, I read the book, the age of autism, which I think is a phenomenal book. And they talked mostly about mercury and how, when they started using mercury to treat syphilis, they, they were seeing some of the very first cases of autism. It seems like documented might've been the 1930s. And before that, you know, they'd never seen anything like this. And then now my, it's my understanding that mercury is no longer in the vaccines, except maybe the flu vaccine. Do you, what do you know about this? Well, yes, they became aware that mercury, mercury is one of the most toxic substances in the world. And they were using it. Yes, it has been used in years gone by for treatments for syphilis and maybe other sexually transmitted diseases as well. Um, but it was used as a preservative in vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called, why am I forgetting the name oh, of what yes. it's called? Um, thimerosal. Thimerosal. Yes. yes. Thimerosal. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, when I was a child, we used to have this stuff called mercurochrome. It was. Um, if you got a cut that your parents thought could get infected, it was a little bottle with a glass rod in it, and they would take some of the mercuricum and dab it on your cut, of course, not knowing that mercury was very toxic. But they were using it as preservatives <laughs> in vaccines, oh and it's, it's, it's very toxic. They, they became aware that it was a problem, and there were these meetings called the Simpsonwood meetings that were sort of secret meetings where they admitted in the secret meeting that the mercury was toxic. And they said, let's take it out of vaccines, but let's not admit that it was a toxin. Let's just say we're taking it out because a lot of people were concerned about it. So they did take mercury out of most vaccines. Um, yes, but it is still in some of the flu shots. If you, I don't recommend taking a flu shot. That's my personal recommendation. But if you have to take one, be sure you get an individual vial instead of a multi-dose vial, because in the individual vials, they don't have to put in a preservative. But in a multi-dose vial where they're sticking a needle into it multiple times, they they still put mercury in some of those as a preservative. So you don't want that mercury injected into you. But mercury is not the only toxic thing in vaccines. There's aluminum and the other things we've been talking about. And just going back to adjuvants, there's also an adjuvant called, I made a couple notes here, called AS01B. It's made up of monophosphoryl lipyl A or MPL, which is an immune boosting substance isolated from the surface of bacteria. I I don't want something taken from the surface of bacteria injected into me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it just does not sound healthy. And then there is an adjuvant called CPG. Uh, I hope I'm going to say this right. CPG one zero one eight, and that is a synthetic DNA. So DNA is 
the substance in the body that is is our genetic material. It determines our traits. It determines, you know, our eye color and our detoxification mechanisms and our personality, our eye color, so many different things. If we start injecting synthetic DNA, that can incorporate into our natural DNA and change our genetics or change what we pass on to our children. So exactly. when I read about these things, it just sounds like crazy, mad scientist experiments. It's, it's one thing if you're doing it in a lab and you're keeping it to yourself, but they create these things and then they want everybody to take it. And it's, um, it's, it's right. And, the, and when disturbing. you said the, the adjuvant that comes from the surface of bacteria, the first thing that popped into my head is that, okay, if you're being vaccinated with this, then what about, uh, we're seeing kind of a resistance to prescription drugs and uh, issues with that. Like, um, what is it? Certain staph infections can cannot prescriptions aren't working for them. Could you? Do you think that could lead to an antibiotic resistance, or is that more that there are parts of antibiotics in vaccines too? Well, there are antibiotics in vaccines that are put in as probably um, preservatives or to prevent infection, infectious agents from being in there. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure the the answer to that question. Of course, antibiotics are way overused just on their own in for general, treating right, infections. Really. And they, they need, keep needing stronger and stronger ones because the bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics. Then you need the next generation and the next generation. But, right. but yes, having a product from the surface of a bacteria is an adjuvant in a vaccine. Yes, maybe that has something to do with antibiotic resistance. Right, um, right. Well, it, it and may well. Yeah, exactly. And you know, good bacteria is one thing, but other bacteria can be life threatening. And you know, yes. and for the people listening and thinking, well, it's such a small amount that they inject there are some things that have to be taken into consideration is, and we're going to talk about the schedule a little bit, but with the schedule, the amount that's being injected is astronomical. And in the combination of some vaccines being given, it's astronomical over the years with the multiple doses that you're receiving. It's very toxic. And, you know, there's people preaching about make sure there's no heavy metals in your lipstick you know, make sure there's no formaldehyde in your makeup and, and those, those sorts of things in your lotion, but it's okay to inject it directly into your bloodstream. Like that doesn't compute to me. Uh, I agree with you, Sarah. And it is an insidious thing because when you look at a vaccine, it does look very small. It's just like a half a CC, 2.5 mLs, and it's being injected not every day, but on a intermittent basis. But yet those components that are being injected can have the effects become magnified within the body. The body starts forming reactions and then your immune system is spiraling out of control and creating hyper responses. Just circling back around to allergies, if you think about that, what is it? It's your body over responding to something that's, that's, it takes in. If you could yes. eat a peanut and you just digest it and move on, that's fine. But if you eat a peanut and that's you have a life-threatening over-response of your immune system, that's what is being triggered by mm-hmm. vaccines and by having foreign substances injected into us. Exactly. That's- it's almost like you trained your body to have a reaction to the thing that it was injecting. 
So then when you come in contact with that, like gluten, even we're seeing a, a lot more celiac and gluten intolerance and, and gluten in general is, is not great for people, but there are really major gluten allergies because don't some vaccines contain gluten as well? Well, they may, but some vaccines contain, um, it's believed that some vaccines contain glyphosate, which is also known okay. as Roundup, which yep. is an herbicide. And the person who's really an expert on that is Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who is okay, an yes. MIT scientist. She just has a new book out called Toxic Legacy, which I'm working my way through. And she she was studying autism and she knew vaccines were a factor but she just felt like something was missing, something in her knowledge base was missing, and there was another component. And she determined that it, it is glyphosate, she and some other scientists that she networks with. And the glyphosate is very insidious as well because she links it to almost every chronic disease you can think of. And you ask yourself a question, well, how can one substance be contributing or causative in all these different chronic diseases. But what she has determined is that glyphosate is very similar to the amino acid glycine. So amino acids are the building blocks of our proteins. And proteins are made up of strings of amino acids. And then a protein, once it's strung together, it because of the positive and negative electrical charges on it, it gets into a certain shape like maybe the shape of a um, some child's toy that's that's shaped like a spiral. That's what your enzyme looks like. Right. But if you, your protein, proteins are, enzymes are proteins and receptor sites are proteins. So if you substitute just one amino acid, instead of looking like the shape it's supposed to look like, it'll be a completely different shape and that then it can't perform its function, which can be receptor sites or enzymes. So all you have to do is substitute gly glyphosate in where glycine is supposed to be, and you've changed the whole shape of the protein and the whole body is not functioning. This can lead exactly. to problems in, with digestion. It can lead to mm -hmm. problems with neurotransmitter receptor sites. It's, mm -hmm. it's a kind of a complicated topic, yeah. but she, yeah. so there are, some of vaccines use gelatin when they're made and the glycine in there in the gelatin might be substituted for a glyphosate. So the glyphosate is getting into the vaccines, which is very bad, very toxic. Um, we don't even know how bad it is, but she's, mm -hmm. she's convinced that glyphosate is a big problem in many of the health problems that we're seeing. Right. Well, and Roundup, you know, we heard the, the major lawsuit there in Monsanto and all that is it's highly toxic. Oh, so, right. They're losing yeah. multi-billion dollar lawsuits. I've never yeah. heard of that before because it causes lymphoma. But exactly. that's only one of the things that it causes. Right. And they're just spraying that all over your, your wheat, even right. probably possibly organic wheat not as an yeah, herbicide, but as a drying right. agent. So that's right. one of the reasons that gluten and, and wheat are very toxic. Yes. So, okay, we've covered a good deal about ingredients. And, uh, you know, I actually back in the day went on the cdc.gov website and I searched, I think, 
vaccine ingredients. And I pulled up, like Janet said, a whole list of all the vaccines and all of their ingredients. And I highly recommend doing that just for the knowledge that you can kind of follow up on everything we're talking about. And some of the things that are abbreviated or are with letters and numbers, you can always Google those and it should tell you exactly what they are. But, um, so ingredients is one thing to kind of raise a red flag and say, Hmm, this doesn't seem great that we're injecting this into our bodies. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of legislature that has been passed over the years and the way in which vaccine manufacturers have kind of been held from any liability and, and the schedule. Let's get into that. So I guess let's start with the 1986 act, because like you said, in the, in the early eighties, things were very different. Yes, things, things were very different. So, so back then, like I said, we just had the DPT, the MMR and the oral polio vaccine, but the pertussis vaccine, which is one of the components in the DPT, it was a very, uh, maybe you could call it a quote unquote, a dirty vaccine. It was like a whole crunched up pertussis bacterium and it caused a lot of bad reactions. So the bad reactions I'm talking about are things like, you know, prolonged high pitch screaming, high fevers, um, seizures, seizure-like activity. And this was due to encephalitis or brain swelling or brain inflammation. Mm-hmm. And it was so many bad reactions that pharmaceutical companies were getting sued and they were losing some big lawsuits and having to make big payouts. So pharmaceutical companies were going to stop making vaccines because they're not in this field because they're humanitarians or they want to help you. They're in this field. They were making money. So when they started losing money, they, they decided they were going to stop making vaccines, but the government did not want them to do that. So a law was passed called the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And basically what that law did was shields companies that manufacture vaccines and doctors or nurses who administer them from liability. So in essence, if you have a bad reaction to a vaccine or your child has a bad reaction to a vaccine injury or even death, you cannot sue the pharmaceutical company or the doctor who administered it. There is a system set up called so-called vaccine court. It's not actually really a court, but it's a system where you can try to sue the federal government to get compensation for what happened to you. But I can assure you, being part of the federal government and with all the claims they get coming in, that that is a very faulty process. They'll sort of rake you over the coals for 10 years and make you keep producing evidence and information. And then if they give you a payout at all, it's nothing that's going to compensate you for the injury or death right. that you experienced. Right. So since that time, since there was no liability, no liability, they have literally added something like 10 vaccines into the schedule. They started, they mm-hmm. added the hip, Haemophilus influenza B. They added hepatitis B. They added influenza for children. They added um, chicken pox. They added hepatitis A. They added Gardasil, human papillomavirus. Uh, what else did they add? Meningococcus. Mm-hmm. I think... Is that, is meningococcus the meningitis one? That is one of the meningitis vaccines. Yes. So called meningitis vaccine. And Mm -hmm. the hepatitis is a sexually transmitted disease that they're giving this vaccine to newborns. Yeah. Hepatitis B is basically a sexually transmitted disease because it's transmitted through 
sharing needles, sexual contact with an infected person, or if you work in a lab and you have a needle stick accident with body fluid, infected body fluid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from what, what I heard is that they developed it initially for people, you know, drug addicts, people using IV drugs, maybe um, gay men, maybe sex workers, these type of people who had a high rate of hepatitis B. Hepatitis right. B isn't really that common in the general population, but there's certain populations where there's a larger incidence of it. So they developed it for those people, but those people weren't really uptaking it that much. So they thought, well, what can we do with this vaccine that we spent you know, all this time and money do, you know, R&D on. So they said, oh, let's start, you know, giving it to children. First, I think it was kindergartners. And then they started giving it to one day old babies. In 1991, mm -hmm. they started giving the hepatitis B vaccine to one day old babies. And all I can say mm -hmm. to people is to, if a mother has been tested, she's negative for hepatitis B giving birth to a baby. There is absolutely no medical reason that you can even come up with why a one day old baby should be getting a hepatitis B vaccine. Exactly. And that's like 12 year old reasoning. They're not going to be sexually active. They're not going to be sharing needles. And since our blood supply has been cleaned up, they're not going to be having infected blood or blood products administered to them. So right. please say no to that. Right. Then there's hepatitis so, A, which is, is food, oh. which is contracted through contaminated food or water, but it's not really that serious an illness. And it's not that common in the U.S. It's more common in some countries where food and water supply is not as, as clean as it is here. Okay. Right. And then like, like you had said, diphtheria, uh, is what whooping cough or that pertussis is whooping cough. And what about diphtheria? Diphtheria is, I've never seen a case of diphtheria. I've seen a number of cases of pertussis, but diphtheria is an infection where sort of a coating forms on the throat in the back of the throat. And I think it can lead to a very bad cough and a very bad respiratory situation. But we haven't had any cases of diphtheria in this country since I think the 1970s. And it's very uncommon around the world at this point. So why we are continuing to use a diphtheria vaccine doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. And then there's uh, rotavirus, which is basically diarrhea. Yes. <laughs> Rotavirus is basically diarrhea. I forgot to say that one when I was talking about yeah. vaccines added into the schedule. And that was that was actually developed at the institution where Dr. Paul Offit works. Haven't heard too much from him lately, but he <sighs> is a vaccinologist. I think he follows in the footsteps of Stanley Plotkin. And he developed a rotavirus vaccine, or he and his his group, research group. And in this in this country, we really do not need a rotavirus vaccine. Yes, around the world, infants can have diarrhea and dehydrate and die. But we, up to this point, we live in a in an industrialized, developed nation where we do have access to IV fluids. And I don't have too much time to get into it. But diarrhea is so readily treatable with homeopathy. It's one of the things that's usually quite easy to treat and will reverse itself. So between hydration, right. other treatments for diarrhea, homeopathy, we really do not need a rotavirus vaccine. Right. And, and when it comes to chicken pox, we all had chicken pox, you know, as kids. And it, it might have sucked, probably sucked more for our moms than it did for us. But it creates other, um, like lifelong immunity to other things, right? 
That's what that's what they say. And when I was a child, being a generation older than you, Sarah, we all had measles, mumps, and rubella. There was no MMR vaccine. Those were right. just childhood viral illnesses that you had. You were out of school for a few days, then you overcame it and you you moved on. And right. some people believe that these viral illnesses sort of prime the immune system in some way that gives you resistance to cancer and other yes. chronic diseases in the future. So we're taking mm-hmm. that away from children and substituting a false immunity gained through, you know, false immunity in quotes gained from vaccines. Um, it's, it's not, it's not right. Right. So, uh, okay. So we see 1986 act is created. The schedule basically doubles and then it goes on to triple pretty much. And let's talk about VAERS. So VAERS ends up being created. So VAERS, I believe it was part of, or piggybacked onto that 1986 act. And by the way, there's a movie called the act. It's, it's sort of fictionalized, but it's like a documentary by Andrew Wakefield and it goes into the, the act. It's like some people talking, delving into and talking about the 1986 act. So that can be a way to learn more about that. But theirs was created. It's the vaccine adverse event reporting system. And it is co-sponsored by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC and the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. And those are agencies in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And basically the purpose of VAERS is to collect data on vaccine reactions. They, they say on their website that it's not really to prove whether one vaccine or another vaccine is toxic or causing injuries or death, but to sort of gather information that they can collate together to learn more about vaccines, especially in what they call post-market surveillance. So when they introduce a vaccine and they start giving it to everybody. And then part of the research that they do on it is after it's actually being given to everybody, they start collecting data on how many people are having bad reactions which is sort of a backwards way to do things. That's, they've been talking about that a lot with, with coronavirus vaccines. It's like, hey, wait a minute. These things weren't really tested. We're all, everybody who's taking it is the experiment. Right. So, the, so it's important to note that VAERS is government funded. So our tax dollars fund VAERS. And to date, what is it, $4.2 billion or $4.3 billion has been paid out to vaccine injuries? Yes, that's, that's, the, yeah. that's the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, this NBICP. Okay. But right. it probably links together with VAERS. I mean, these are sort of interrelated institutions, but that's mm-hmm. the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And yes, it is. Each, uh, from what I understand, each vaccine that's administered, which is mil- millions of them, has a 75 cent tax if that if that mm-hmm. amount has not changed. And that accumulates a fund that's used to pay out to people who have a successful claim against the Department of Health and Human Services for a vaccine injury. Which it's basically like good luck if you have a successful claim because it's a nightmare. And I think 
very few people get any kind of compensation, but also it's said, I think it was Stanford that put out a study that said only about 1% of uh, vaccine injuries are ever reported to VAERS. And yeah, it was actually Harvard. They, there was a okay, study Harvard. done at Harvard. I think they were commissioned to do a study at one of their affiliated HMOs to collect data on vaccine adverse events. And they discovered that, um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna say this quite right, but a very high percentage of people who were getting vaccines were having some sort of negative consequence. And when they wanted to give their data to the CDC, they basically, the CDC cut off communication with them because they didn't, apparently because they didn't like what they were seeing. But they determined, it used to be said that only something like one to 10% of vaccine injuries actually ever made it into VAERS, the VAERS database. But after this study, the people from Harvard said probably 1% or less. So any number you see for numbers of vaccine injuries or deaths, you can probably multiply that by 100, or at least anywhere from 10 to 100 to get to think about the real number. And what I'm hearing from practitioners, uh, some doctors and uh, PAs that are currently working, because VAERS is kind of for the first time come to light and people are like, wait, what's VAERS? We didn't even know about it. And then so, so now kind of the argument is, well, anyone can report to VAERS. So it's people coming on that are just hating on the vaccines and reporting. And I have heard from doctors, from different practitioners, no, you can't just go on VAERS. I've been on VAERS. It, you can't just go on there and make stuff up. It is a very extensive process. A lot of times they ask, I guess, for the batch number or lot number of the vaccine administered. You need medical information from this person. So it's, it's a lengthy process. And apparently if you're a doctor and you're on, you know, working and you're entering information, you can't save as you go. And so if you get called to a patient or called into the ER, it erases everything that you put. It doesn't save it. And it's a lengthy process. So, so many people don't have time for that. Yes. Have you seen that physician assistant being interviewed? She's been yes. on um, the high wire, a couple, the high yes, wire with she, Joe Victory, which I watch every week. She's awesome. Yeah. Yep. She, and she, the poor woman was trying to report all these vaccine injuries. And number one, it was, like it was using up all job. of her time. And number two, she was yeah. sort of told to stop doing it and then yes. eventually lost her job over, yep. over that issue. Did you know about VAERS when you were first adopted? I mean, because you kind of were took a different road pretty quickly, but did you ever learn about it or was it even in place back then? Um, I think it it came in um, along with the 1986 Act um, or, or maybe a few years after that, maybe 1990. And to be honest with you, I don't remember when I really first became aware of it. And I also have to say that I have actually not made reports to it because number one, of not knowing about it early on. And number two, some of the cases of vaccine injury I've dealt with have already been reported or else they've been so far in the past. Right. I, If I'm not mistaken, I believe it may have a statute of limitations. Like you have to report within a certain amount of time. I mean, that's probably for the compensation program, actually. But right. I, I may be wrong on that. 
But yeah, I, it's crazy how many doctors don't even know about VARES and supposedly you're supposed to report all of these adverse events, but it's like they they don't even know that, that the, the system exists or they're not really informed on how to use it. That is, is quite correct. I certainly was never informed on how to use it. I'm sure it would be a big learning curve for me if I wanted to start using it now. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So then, you know what, so let's talk about the ACIP a little bit, because I was listening to one of their, you can apparently go and listen to some of their meetings and they're recorded and it's appalling. Some of the things that they talk about with such, such a casual attitude, especially in the way of the COVID-19 vaccine. But, um, th- that's, is that set up by the CDC, is it? I, I believe it's a committee within the CDC. It's the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices. And ba- I mean, the way I start to think about this is it's sort of like a a big brother network, <laughs> like these people yeah. that are in industry and the government, and then probably the major institutions that are setting policies for doctors and healthcare institutions. They're all kind of buddy-buddy and they're working on these things together. It may look like they're separate entities, but but they're not. I mean, there's that concept of the revolving door, like first you working for, first you're working in the government and then you go into industry and start creating vaccines that you then mandate your cronies exactly. mandate through the government. Mm-hmm. So the advisory committee on immunization practices, they're supposed to review vaccines that are being developed and then they make a recommendation to the CDC. And then pretty much anytime they make a recommendation that a vaccine starts being used, first it's recommended, then it becomes, you know, quote unquote mandated. So everybody's supposed to use it. But right. it is so the, funded oh, by ahead. the CDC, which is funded Conflict by taxpayer dollars. But yeah. also from what I understand, and I'm not an expert on this, is that they called patents and they get money from industry as well. So there's just a lot of conflicts of interest. For example, the Paul Offit, I mentioned him before as one of the developers of the rotavirus vaccine. And then he was on the advisory committee, ASIP, that then recommended that rotavirus vaccine be used on all children. And he, his institution earned, I don't know, multi-millions. And he himself probably earned something like 6 million from rotavirus. So it's just um, a lot of conflicts of interest. Right. Yeah. And for people listening who might be saying to themselves, like, what would be the reason or why, why are things like this? And why are they telling us that we should put these things in our children? And like, oh, people are, are really not that evil or, you know, that, that would never be the case. And it's, it's just about really money and power for the most part. And it's amazing how corrupt people can be. And they get so kind of sidetracked by just that bottom line that ethics goes out the door. And so what we're seeing a lot of the corruption that's going on is, is related to money and power. And I believe that there are some greater agendas out there for the world, but generally speaking, it's, the root of all evil, you know? I mean, what what I've heard, Sarah, is that the government is actually 
owned by pharmaceutical companies. And I believe that it's essentially right. the, these companies are the government because they have mm-hmm. such deep pockets and they have so much control. Power. And yes. it's sort of like, is your individual doctor a bad person, your individual doctor who's administering these vaccines? Well, one of the blogs I wrote and my our Tenpenny website got taken down and some somehow it got it crashed and got lost and so a lot of my blogs got lost but but basically i wrote a blog and it was talking about why do doctors administer vaccines and one reason is that they don't know that vaccines are dangerous mm-hmm. and that i'm sorry but that is willful ignorance it's it's being it's ignorant which means lack of knowledge if you haven't looked into this and discovered some of these controversies you're you just are ignorant or right. they know about the dangers of vaccines and they are they don't care in which case they're evil or they know about the dangers of vaccines and they're just they're worried about they could lose their job or lose their position or lose their status and that's cowardly so either you're right. ignorant or evil or cowardly i'm sorry that's the only way i can see it yes. because people can practitioners can make choices to do something different. I mean, I have my whole career in the beginning. Yes, I did administer some vaccines, but it was totally elective. There was never any pressure. And then when I became more aware of more of these controversies, I just said to myself, you know what, I can in good conscience, continue offering this or administering it. People can still seek it out elsewhere. I'm not telling people what to do, but it's just a service that I choose to not administer. Have right. I earned and less money? I've earned less money, but I I don't care about money enough to inject what I know to be toxic into children. Right. And you've been able to to maintain your conscience and your good standing and and not having parents coming in just probably torn apart over the things happening to their children. And it's like, I know so many people, so many mothers and fathers who are dismissed by their doctors when like a lot of this information that we're sharing, you sadly can't go with some of these, these tidbits and take them to your doctor and ask them because like Janet said, a, they don't know they're not educated in medical school about these details of vaccines. They are told they are safe and effective and to administer them according to the schedule. So unless they are doing their own research or they're willing to stand up for what's right, they're probably going to dismiss you or give you a crazy look. Oh no, that's, that's conspiracy theory. That's not true. But literally everything that we're saying, you can look it up for yourself and find the information. It's there. That's true. That's true. Yes, I I just wish more doctors would develop a knowledge base and a good conscience because doctors are sort of a a hinge between the industry and the public because the industry is creating these things that they then want doctors to administer to the public. But if doctors said, no, we're not going to do it or we're not going to do it the way you're telling us to do it, the whole system could really step back a few notches if doctors were really taking the time to do true informed consent inform informing themselves and then informing their patients about the pros and cons and to be honest with you there's really not that many pros and i mean i know that's my viewpoint but i I have to say it right 
you know, you said safe and effective. Well, we've already talked about the fact that they are not safe because we know they contain toxins that can do anything uh, from, you don't notice an effect right away, but maybe it's slowly deteriorating your immune system in some way up to death. And I, I right. myself saw those three babies die of SIDS within 24 hours of being vaccinated. But the whole flip side of it is they are not really even effective. I mean, every vaccine, it's too long to go into each one, but every vaccine has its downside of how of, of effects that occur within the body that make it not be effective. In fact, the pertussis vaccine, they want women to take that with every pregnancy nowadays because they're talking about, mm-hmm. oh, your baby's going to be born and he's not going to be eligible for a pertussis vaccine until he's two months old. So what about that two-month window? He's going to be unprotected. So you mother, you have to take uh, pertussis vaccine, you grandparents who are going to be coming to visit the child, you have to take a pertussis vaccine. But I downloaded an article from the Journal of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, which is you know a mainstream journal. And what it says is that if you take the acellular pertussis vaccine, which is the current vaccine in use, um, it's the DTAP, the A is the acellular. Anyway, what it says is if you take that vaccine, you have a lifetime increased susceptibility to pertussis and there's nothing that can be done about it. In other words, the vaccine has negative effectiveness. It's causing you to be more likely to have pertussis. And the thing is, it's not working. So what do they do? They just like, oh, just take it more often. Take it with every pregnancy. And that's exactly what we are seeing now blatantly with the COVID-19 vaccine, where basically we know it doesn't work. It doesn't protect you from getting or spreading. And in fact, if you really listen to different scientists and PhDs, they're telling us that you're probably going to have a far worse outcome from with COVID-19 than if you just naturally got it, you know, after getting the vaccine and not to mention the health concerns, you know, from the actual vaccine, but it's like, they're, they're not effective. And yet they just keep getting kind of like, Oh, here's your booster now in six months. And, you know, and so I think now is the time when people are, there's a, a majority, well, I can't say the majority, but maybe there's a half of the people that are waking up and saying, wait a minute now, if this is going on with this vaccine, okay, what are, what is going on? What it has been going on all these years with the other ones, you know, and I'm hoping that that opens people's minds to be more curious, which is why I wanted to do this podcast and to get information. Well, I sure hope so, because, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry loves nothing more than something that you're supposed to take repeatedly. Like they love statin drugs. Oh, your cholesterol is, you know, a couple points over the line. Start taking this statin drug and you have to take it every day for the rest of your life. Or start taking this blood thinner and you have to take it every day for the rest of your life. They love a vaccine that you have to take repeatedly. Flu shot, it's a cash cow. You take it every year. There's no liability. What's the downside for them? It's just money that they're earning. And that's, I think, where they're going with the COVID vaccines. Okay, initially it was two doses or maybe one if you took the J&J, but oops, wait a minute. It's not really working that well. You need a booster. It's going to be a booster every six months. And you know what I've said, and I really believe this is true, is they, (laughs) the other side, they will not stop the only thing that will stop them is people saying, no, no, thank you. We're not taking it. They will never stop their recommendations to you. They will just keep coming at you with more and more that you're supposed to do. 
Exactly. And I think people have to be brave and they have to be willing to potentially lose their jobs to, uh, to, to really stand up and say no way, because it's sad. I know so many people who have just kind of said, Oh, well, it's not, I didn't do it because I know it works or because I need it. I just did it because I don't want the bother. I want to, to travel or these reasons that yes, we should be able to move freely, but you know, not at the, the expense. And when you just sort of bow down and say, okay, whatever, then it makes it harder as we go. It does, it's not going to get easier. It makes it harder and it makes it harder for everyone else. And then they just continue to sort of move forward on us with their plans because they see people submitting. So it's, it's so important now more than ever to stand up and to be brave and to, to trust this that if you do that, there will be blessings that will come behind you, you know, that will make up maybe for some of your initial losses. That's right. Well, you know, you're bringing up a lot of good points. I mean, there are the people that have taken the vaccine, the talking about corona, coronavirus vaccines. They've taken it because they think it's a good idea for them and they think it's good for their health and, you know, more power to them. At least they're taking it for the right reason. Then there's that right. whole group of people who really doesn't want to take it. They don't really believe it's going to be healthy for them, but they think they need to do it for their job or because they want to travel or for their spouse or for, for some relative. And that that is the wrong reason to be taking it. People should I say to people, you should only take it if you believe it's good for your health. And right. if you, you're mis, I don't say you're misguided if you think it's good for your health, but don't take it unless that's your reason. But then there's the people like me and, and like you and many others that we know, um, I wish there were more, who really aren't going to take it for any reason. And we are the people who are going to have to forge a new yeah, society or a new way of being. Yes. But there, and there, there's something I want to bring up a point was just coming to my mind, which is people think if you're opposed to vaccines, or you're opposed to mandates that you don't care if people get sick, or you want people to get sick. But really, nothing can be further from the truth. It's not like I'm in favor of illness, or I want people to be sick, or I want people to die. But it's just a faulty notion that taking a vaccine is the way to prevent that. Exactly. There's many other things that we can do. So listen, why aren't they putting the fear of God in us every day about getting into a car to drive somewhere? Because mm -hmm. fact, the facts show that anytime you get into a car, it is a potentially deadly or dangerous activity because right now out there somewhere, someone's having a fatal car accident. And that anytime you're getting in a car, you're putting yourself at that risk. But they're not pounding that fear into you every day. Like, what a terrible parent you are. You put your child into a car to take them somewhere. Didn't you know that's potentially deadly? Yes, we've made it safer with, you know, car seats and rear facing and airbags. But nonetheless, it's a potentially deadly activity. But if you, for your good and well-researched reasons, decide to not take a vaccine, you're the pariah out there who's, you know, trying to kill your baby. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's right. just not true. Um, right. I totally so, agree. Um, well, so before we kind of wrap it up, I was two things that I wanted to talk about briefly is, uh, religious exemption. So like I get messaged now almost daily, you know, what can I do now? Normally, if your state allows religious and medical exemptions, like you go down to your health department, you say you want a religious exemption for vaccines, and then you can present that at school or wherever, you know, they're asking for 
vaccines or whatever. And like in the state of Florida, we still have religious and medical. Now that does not apply for the COVID-19 vaccine though, right? Where a religious exemption would not work for that. The exemptions are administered state by state. So it may be different with Corona vaccines, but each state is different. There's six states that have no religious or philosophical exemption. And those are West Virginia, Mississippi, and then a few years ago, California added on, then New York, Maine, and Connecticut. So those unfortunate states have no parental, religious, or philosophical exemptions. All the other states have religious exemptions, and then 15 states, in addition to that, have philosophical exemptions. Ohio, um, the state that I live in, actually were a good state in the sense that we have religious and philosophical exemptions. Um, All states have medical exemptions to vaccines, but the problem with that is, and the problem with the whole vaccine injury compensation program is the government has set up sort of a table of conditions that they view as actually caused by vaccines that allow you to obtain compensation or obtain an exemption. So they'll reject your medical exemption if you don't fit that one of those limited diagnoses. Sorry, I get very upset about this because in the beginning of my career, if I as a doctor assess my patient and determine that they were medically there was a potential for them to be harmed by vaccines on a medical basis, I could write a medical exemption and it would be accepted. However, nowadays I've written some and they've been rejected in West Virginia and in Ohio. It's like some bureaucrat somewhere says, oh, well, this person doesn't have, you know, daily seizures that started after a vaccine or they didn't have a near-death experience anaphylaxis after a vaccine, so they don't qualify for this medical exemption. So the authority of a doctor to to set up a an exemption for a patient has been taken away by and large. Right. Yeah. So what I'm hearing about corona vaccines is that I think it's different because it's still being sort of federally applied and it's I think it's still under emergency use authorization. I don't think it's fully approved yet. Um, I believe that some people are successfully getting religious exemptions. So one right. one place to look for um for information on that is the Healthy American. I think it's the healthyamerican.org. It's Peggy Hall. She knows a lot about exemptions and how to get exemptions. Actually, she talks about masks, but I think she's talking about vaccines as well. Okay. And I know America's Frontline Doctors, it's America's Frontline Doc.com, I think, but they had quite a bit of information too mm-hmm. on that. But you know, that's a fight that's, it's an uphill battle for sure for people. And it just, like you said, it kind of differs from state to state or organization. I know uh, my, my best friend's sister's husband had an issue with his, he's a ear, nose and throat doctor. And he stood his ground and, and went with the religious exemption. And I think he might've hired a lawyer as well, but they backed off and let him be. And he was well, you know, good, one of the only doctors that didn't do it. Yeah, good for him. And and I think that's what people have to do. If Once again, if you don't want to take it, if you don't believe it's good for your health, do not take it because, well, we do know that many people are dying as a result of taking it or being yes. injured in injured, some way. Right. 
So before we go, what would you say is a good way for people to educate themselves? Like where can they start to kind of, we, and we've put out some great resources. So I hope that you all are writing them down from some of these books, documentaries, websites. Do you have anything else you would add to that list? Well, for people who want to um, start informing themselves with with real facts and data, I do recommend the National Vaccine Information Center, which is nvic.org. They go, first of all, they have a lot of information on exemptions and they each vaccine has a, like a page on their site and you can just go, like you can go look up that hepatitis B and just look all about it, the history of it and the science of it. And there's be a lot of links. Um, I happen to really like the lectures of Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. She's amazing. Suzanne Humphreys. Yeah, she's amazing. I'm just actually was going to try to look online and see if her YouTube channel is still here. I hope they haven't taken her down. down. Her Her book though is great. If you're into some of the history of vaccines and some of the myths surrounding like the polio vaccine and that sort of thing, her book, Dissolving Illusions is really, really a good book. Yes. And she has a memoir too. I think her YouTube channel is still here, but she's, she's a very good lecturer and she, her lectures are kind of long, but they're very scientific. She has a reference for everything. Um, I also like um, the books of Neil Z. Miller pretty well, because he'll take a lot of information and kind of condense it and give you a summary. Although his latest book is from a few years ago at this point. But, and to be honest with you, I love watching the high wire every week. Cause I feel yes. like I get information on this whole topic <laughs> and you yes, know, the facts the high report and a lot of, lot of yep. references. The highwire.com for everyone listening. If you're not already going there every Thursday, Dell big tree, he puts out a new episode and you can find, they, they present all of the research, all of the studies, everything that they say and that they claim is all supported and they don't take funding from any companies. They don't have sponsors. They don't take funding. And so they can completely post unbiased information. So that's a huge one to follow. You'll learn so much from them. That's yeah. And you can, one. You can access their content for free, although I do give them a a donation each month to support Mm -hmm. what I'm getting. And I also really like J.B. Hanley's book, uh, How to End the Autism Epidemic. Um, He's really awesome, his whole story. You know, I haven't read his book, but I did hear that in his book, he's supporting um, like alternative vaccine schedules. Um, So, Well, he... I think, I don't know that he does anymore, but he was very pro vaccine when he first, you know, started down this road with his son and then witnessed him fall into autism. And I don't know that he, he's, he definitely supports the science being done and hit all of his stuff is backed up with a lot of research. And he even the mainstream research that, that they try to cite, he goes in and really explains and refutes all of that. And so it's really informative. And I know um, Dr. Tenpenny is a bit of a controversial figure. I work with her at the Tenpenny Center, but she has a site called the Vaccine Research Library, and she just collects articles from mainstream journals and archives them all 
bringing up different controversial aspects of vaccines that have come out of the science. Like that article I was talking about, about the acellular pertussis vaccine causing you to, causing you to have a lifetime increased susceptibility to pertussis. That would be the type of article that she would have in there. Okay. Great. So there's a lot of re- there's a lot of resources, and this is like a huge topic, and it's mm-hmm. hard to wrap your mind around the whole thing in a short amount of time. Right. I just hope that with today's conversation, we've maybe brought you guys some solid information that you can learn from, and that it spikes some interest for you to go out and to do your own research and just to ask questions, you know, just be informed. Our health is our responsibility and these types of things are up to us and they should be our choice. And it's just so important to educate yourself ahead of time on all of these things. That is well said, Sarah. And I'll say a similar thing about giving vaccines to your children, as I said, um, about taking a vaccine for yourself. If you're going to have a doctor or a healthcare practitioner administer vaccines to your child, it should be because you've researched it, you've looked into it, you feel good about it, you're on board with it, and you think it's a, a healthy choice for your child. Don't just do it because someone's telling you to do it. Do it because it seems right to you. Um, right. Otherwise, it. I mean, e- even if that's the case, and if that's not the case, it may be a decision you'll live to regret. So And if a doctor is pressuring you, don't let them fire you. You fire them and find somebody who respects your viewpoint, will answer your questions, will take the time with you, and will not pressure you to do a series of what really should be elective procedures, not mandatory procedures. Right. Well, that's great advice. Well, tell everyone where they can find you and uh, follow you or your, I don't know what you want to share with everybody, but... Um, well, I do have a website, but it's not fully developed, but people could go look at, at the bones of it. It's uh, my name, JanetLevitonMD.com, which is Janet, J-A-N-E-T-L-E-V-A-T-I-N-M-D.com. And I'm also at the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center in Middlebrook Heights, Ohio. Great. Awesome. Well, It has been a pleasure. I'm so glad you agreed to join me again and we could really dive into this topic. I know we could go on for (laughs) quite, quite a bit more, but uh, I'm, I'm happy with the information we were able to gather today. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Sarah. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you talking. Yep. Take care. All right, everyone join me next time. Thanks so much for being here. Talk to you all soon.